We're going to continue on moving through uh, the letter of 1 John. And um, there's these three, three books of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, um, that, we, uh, that we have that have been passed down to us throughout church history. And uh, these three letters are most likely written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And uh, we can gather that at the time of Jesus, John was a really young man, probably no older than 15 or 16, when Jesus invited him to come and follow him. And so um, throughout the gospel narratives, you kind of get this picture that John has this special place among the group of disciples, that he's kind of always drawing, he's always the center of attention in lots of stories, and Jesus has to pay special attention to John, and we even get this picture that they had this really, really close relationship to the point where as Jesus is in the final moments of his life and dying on the cross and Jesus' mother Mary is standing there uh, watching this, basically there's this interaction where Jesus entrusts the care of his elderly mother to this young man, John. All right, so that's the nature of this relationship uh, that Jesus and John had, incredibly uh, deep, personal uh, friendship kind of relationship. And so now, fast forward several decades, John is now a very old man, probably in his 90s, and most likely, we don't know for sure, but most likely the last living original disciple. He's the last guy on earth that actually knew Jesus personally. And so in his old age, he's now pastoring a network of house churches, probably in the area of Ephesus, and he's trying to pass on the legacy of the kingdom community that Jesus came to inaugurate in the church. And so John is doing some... excuse me, pastoral work in these letters. And what we can gather by the context is that this church or network of churches had just gone through a pretty significant season of trial and crisis. And we don't know all the details, but we can gather that there had been a major split and a big chunk of those that had identified with this group of churches and with Jesus have now denied the faith. And they're no longer professing that Jesus is Lord or that he is God's Messiah for Israel. And so they have rejected this faith that's been passed down and they have split off uh, from the church. And so all these people that used to be in community together, there's now been this division uh, over some pretty major theological differences. And so John is writing to this network of Christians in a moment of incredible tension and conflict and transition And he's trying to, as this kind of last remaining apostle, pass on the life of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the word of Jesus uh, to these people that have gone through a hard time. And so what John's doing here is what we might call pastoral theology. That he's not just doing academic theology and trying to lay out some treatise about God, but he has a specific group of people that are struggling in mind, and he's seeking to remind them, to explain to them, to encourage them, to not be led astray by those that have rejected Christ and those that have left Christianity, but to hold on to the God who has come to us in Jesus, the God who has made himself known to us through this person of Christ and the God who we can trust with our whole lives and even 
with the questions and doubts we struggle with in our faith. And so that's what John is doing in these letters. It's letters of encouragement, letters of correction, and letters that are meant to help his readers persevere or endure even in the, uh, the, the crisis that they're going through. So that's a little bit of the context. Now when we get to uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, apparently one of the issues that's arisen in this whole controversy is that those that have rejected the Christian faith are claiming that part of that for them is that they no longer feel like they are people who have sin in their life. They are apparently claiming that they don't sin and therefore don't need to be forgiven, right? So they've strayed from the teaching of, of the historic faith that starts at the beginning of the story of God and goes all the way through Jesus. <clears throat> and so John is writing to correct and to address that issue. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, um, starting in verse 5, John uses the metaphor of light and darkness, to talk about righteousness and sin, okay? And he starts the whole conversation, not with a conversation about us, but with a conversation about God. Who is God and what is God like? Now, last week we saw that God has revealed himself to us in a lot of different ways, but primarily and ultimately through the person of Jesus, the gift of his son. <clears throat> and John's going, I've seen him, I knew him, I walked with him. I was there with him. I know the God who has come to us in Christ. And here's what he has to say. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Okay? And so John uses this metaphor to describe the nature of who God is and what God is like. Now, he doesn't spend a lot of time unpacking that metaphor for us, and I think it's obvious because all people at all times in all places uh, understand the realities of light and darkness. And so, uh, what comes to your mind? We're going to open it up a little bit. What does he mean when he says that God is light? What does that tell us about who God is and what God is like? few short answers. What does it mean that God's light? Pure. Good. He's pure. Undefiled. No unrighteousness. No sin. He's pure light. What else? He reveals. he reveals. Good. So that's what light does, right? When you turn on the light in a dark room, it doesn't create anything. It simply reveals what is already there. Any other thoughts? No secrets. No secrets. Nothing's hidden. Nothing sketchy behind the scenes. <clears throat> Guides you. Good. A light or a lamp can, something that we can follow into truth. Holiness? Is that what you said? Yeah. <clears throat> Good. So I, I think we get the idea that this metaphor is broad enough to talk about God in a lot of different ways. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So there's a moral aspect of this. God is morally perfect, pure, holy, righteous. There is no sin. He's not guilty of anything or anything like that. But then there's a functional aspect to this metaphor too. That light serves a purpose. Light reveals truth. Light guides the way. Light gives us uh, confidence going forward. And so in a lot of ways, light is synonymous with truth. Light is truth. Light reveals what is. It correlates to reality. That's what light does. Okay, so he starts in saying God's light. He's the truth. He's pure. He's holy. He's good. 
There's no one else like him, and there's, there's no darkness in him at all. Then, in verse 6, he moves on to say, if that's what God's like, then there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. <clears throat> verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So two kinds of people in the world, those who are walking in the light and those who are walking uh, in the darkness. So those, who are those who walk in the light? Well, in his own words, it's those who have true fellowship with God. And he's already used that language several times in the first four verses, saying that the gospel invitation that Jesus makes a way for us is to have a relationship, a fellowship, fam familial relationship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and with one another. And so those that are walking in the light are those that are living in that fellowship with God and with each other. And therefore, those who walk in the darkness are those who aren't. Those who don't live out the truth is the word that he uses. Okay, so at first glance, what it appears that he's saying, at least as I first kind of come to this text, it seems that a, somebody who's walking in the light is the good, faithful Christian right? That somebody who's living a holy life, a righteous life, a, a pure life, a just life, that that is the idea of somebody who's walking in the light. And then somebody who's walking in the darkness is somebody who's living in sin, somebody who's living in rebellion or ignorance against God, somebody who's deliberately disobeying God's order as a way of life. And so simplistically, it would appear that he's saying, basically, good people are walking in the light, bad people are walking in darkness. Those that are following the rules and doing their devotions and doing all the good stuff that Christians are supposed to do, that's the light. And then those that are doing all the bad stuff, they're walking in the darkness. Good people, bad people. And that would be a pretty simplistic reading of that because I don't think that's what he's saying. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, he... He goes on now in verse 8 to help us understand a little bit more about these two kinds of people. He says, if we claim to be without sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So here's what's interesting. It's not that those who are walking in the light are the good, righteous, holy, moral Christians, and those who are walking in the darkness are the bad, disobedient, unrighteous people. He's saying that's not actually the difference. The difference is, what do you claim to be true about you and your sin? He introduces this idea of confession. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, will forgive us and cleanse us. So here's the twist. To walk in the darkness isn't to sin, it's to pretend that you haven't sinned. And to walk in the light is to confess your sin. To let every part of your being be exposed under the light of God. So it's not the good people that don't sin and the bad people that do sin. 
It's the reality that all humans are infected with the disease of sin, and some of us are willing to look at that and confess it, and others of us are going to deny it and pretend that we aren't. Do you see that? So interesting. So this is the picture. Not that some are sinners and some aren't, but all are sinners. Some of us are willing to examine our lives under the light of God, and others are unwilling to do so. And those that claim they have not sinned are those that walk in the darkness. So I met a guy, it's a pastor, several years ago. We were at a conference together, ended up uh, as roommates, and got to know each other pretty well. And uh, over the course of the weekend, at one point, he told me that he hasn't sinned in 30 years. And, uh, <laughs> and he's actually part of a um, very prominent Christian tradition. I won't name the denomination. They're good folks. But there is, uh, in the big picture, there's a category called the holiness tradition within Christianity that basically gives a vision that moral perfection is something that we can accomplish in this lifetime with the help of the Spirit. And so there's a lot of conversations we could have around that. But I'm sitting here going... You haven't sinned in 30 years. And he's like, yeah, that's really amazing. And um, <laughs> and for him, and for, I think, none, none of us would ever say that, right? You guys are laughing at that. So uh, we've all sinned in the last 30 seconds, and we know that. Um, rarely do we hear people say that. Um, but that is the idea that we would say, well, that guy who no longer sins, that must be exactly what walking in the light looks like. That's a good Christian who's doing all the right things, right? But it actually sounds like that's the exact kind of person John is saying walks in the darkness. Those who claim to be without sin. And so this guy, for whatever reason, has embraced his ignorance and, de and denial <laughs> of the broken places in his life. And if it wasn't so sad, it would be hilarious. But here's the problem with that. In claiming to be without sin, I and people have asked me this before, do you think we can get to that point where in our, in our lifetime we no longer uh, sin? And my answer is, even if we did, we would never know it. And here's why. Because in the Bible, there's two kinds of sins. There's the sins of commission and the sins of omission, right? So when we think of sin, we typically think of doing the things that we ought not to do. Breaking God's laws, disobeying uh, God's commands, denying the scripture or whatever. Those are sins of commission, when we do what we aren't to do. But then there's this whole other category of sins that are sins of omission, when we don't do what we ought to do, right? And so... Uh, it's not just active violation, but there's a passive or an apathetic way that we can sin against God too. And so if this guy is talking to me and saying, I haven't sinned in 30 years, then I can say, well, maybe whatever category he has uh, for sin, it, it would have to fall in the category of commission sins, right? I haven't done these things. But I'm saying... How could you claim to be without sins of omission? Meaning you've... You have listened to every prompting of the Holy Spirit and responded 
with faith and obedience every time God is speaking to you? Or have you obeyed the first and greatest commandment perfectly? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is there any more love that you could give to God? I mean, if that's Jesus' greatest commandment, then it seems that the greatest sin would be to break that commandment, right? And so you're saying, I love God with everything I am all the time and have for 30 years. It's just crazy. So all I'm saying is uh, even if we did get to a point of moral purity, I don't think we would ever know it. Because God continually calls, leads, speaks, guides his people into life, into community with each other, into fellowship with him, into service to the world. And so it's the wrong question to ask, right? So the difference between those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness isn't that some sin, some don't. But it's those who walk in the light live a well-examined life. They are willing to pay attention to the places of brokenness and ignorance and rebellion against God. And those who walk in the darkness are the ones that deny it. Now, none of you, like my friend at the uh, retreat, would claim I haven't sinned. But the reality is so much of the American church culture that we know actually functionally operates in the same way. Right? We'd never say, I I don't sin. But instead of acknowledging our sin, we're given these two options. That either we're going to defend ourselves and try to justify our life, actions, words, whatever, and say that it's not sin, I haven't done anything wrong. Or uh, we're going to defend or we're going to pretend. We're going to fake it. We're going to put on a mask. We're going to hide behind an appearance of a righteous Christian life, even though we're aware that deep down there's all kinds of messy, broken places in us. And I think we can all think of people or Christian communities we've come in contact with that have those dynamics at play. That I'm going to justify and defend myself and prove to you that I'm not in the wrong, or I'm just going to pretend. And I'm going to put on this hypocritical mask. I'm going to be self-righteous and maintain the image that I'm something Uh, that I'm not. John here offers us a third way. We don't have to defend ourselves and we don't have to pretend to be without sin. He goes, there's an easy third way and it's the way of confession. The way of confession. So if I were to ask you, what is the most Christian thing somebody can do? What comes to mind? No wrong answer. What comes to mind? What's the most Christian thing someone can do? Forgive. Love your neighbor. Read your Bible. What'd you say? Good. Say it again. Share the gospel. Good. These are all good Christian things to do. I would argue that at the top of that list, somewhere in the top few, that confessing your sins is one of the most Christian things we can do. Practice hospitality, serve the poor, preach the gospel, take communion. All of these exclusively beautiful Christian acts. But the idea of confessing our sins is so central to the invitation of the gospel 
that I really don't know if we even have a paradigm for the Christian faith without a practice of confession. And so I think it, when I say confessing our sins, I simply mean admitting that we're wrong, owning our mistakes, acknowledging our flaws. That is a Christian practice that we would do well to get really good at. So here's what's rough about it. Culturally, um, confessing or admitting fault is not something that's really celebrated, right? I mean, if you get in a car accident, what's the first thing your insurance agent tells you what to do? Don't admit any fault, right? For some of you, in your job, especially if you're in the medical field or the legal field or something like that, there are just lists of protocols that you have to follow to protect yourself or your company from lawsuits or accusations or whatever. You have to defend, I did everything right. I followed these rules, followed these procedures. I have the paperwork, I have the receipts to back it up so that I can say, I didn't do anything wrong, don't sue us, right? And then the tendency is to take that mentality and let it seep into our faith and our relationships and our community interactions within the church. That we find ways to either pretend or to defend ourselves, to justify, to find a way to cover up Uh, within our own conscious or before God or something like that. And what I'm saying is that confessing our sins is the way of Jesus. Admitting our wrongs, acknowledging our flaws is one of the most Christian things you can do. So a lot of men in the church have asked me at different times, um, what do you think it means to be the spiritual leader of your home? And that's a big conversation that we don't have time for. The first thing I'd say, it's not actually a biblical term, um, spiritual leader, but I do think that if a man is feeling a sense that I want to provide more, if I want to assume more responsibility for the well-being and the faith and the life of my wife and kids or whatever, uh, then that's a good thing. And so I say, I don't really know what it means to be a spiritual leader, but I know that my job is to be the first to repent. That when Jen and I get in a conflict every three, four years or something like that, (laughs) if I want to be the spiritual leader in that situation, then it starts with confession. It starts with assuming that my own selfishness is the problem in our relationship. It starts not by pointing fingers at her and why I'm disappointed or upset or frustrated with her, but starting with self-examination, starting with owning my part of it, and like I said, assuming that it's actually on me. Now that's a pretty different picture of spiritual leadership than what, what you'll hear. So for me, spiritual leadership isn't that I'm always right, doing the right thing, doing the holy Christian husband, father, pastor thing, therefore you can follow me. That would be walking in the darkness, pretending to be without sin. For me, spiritual leadership is saying, I was wrong. Owning my flaws, my mistakes, my brokenness. 
which is the first step towards reconciliation, isn't it? And that applies not just to marriage, but pretty much every relationship, Christian friendships, parents, kids, in the, in the life of the church. The most Christian thing we can do is to confess our sins, admit that we're wrong, acknowledge our failings and our shortcomings. And so, um, my hope is that in this season, as we're learning to love one another well, as we're learning to let the life of Jesus fill our hearts and our homes and our city as the, as the people of God here in Bend, that we would adopt this practice of confession and take it very seriously. And so for two weeks now, during our opening worship set, we have a time where we invite you towards confession. And the reason I think it's incredibly valuable is because if I just said, okay, now everybody go start living a life of confession, uh, most of us just don't even really have the tools to do that, right? We don't have a paradigm. We haven't had the teaching or the training or the cultural environment that makes, makes that easy for us. And so central to our worship every week now will be an opportunity to practice confession together. So yes, there's space for personal confession in your life with God, in your prayers. Acknowledge, take some time, self-examine, ask God to seek you, uh, seek your heart, know your mind. We do that as individuals, but for as us as a community, we're going to do that together on a regular basis. And so here's the prayer that we prayed this morning together, this uh, prayer of confession. We're not going to read it again, but let me show you what this is saying. God of mercy. So we're not primarily coming to this God of judgment, a God who's angry or, or whatever it is. We're primarily coming before God as a God who's merciful, a God who wants to give grace, a God who wants to forgive, a God who is saying, come, receive life and love from me. And then we have this kind of sins of commission and sins of omission aspect. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone, right? Sins of commission, sins of omission. And we haven't loved you with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. We go on to say, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us your, our sins that we may delight in your will, walk in your ways for the glory of your name forever. So here's the idea. That as we, and this is true of all the kind of liturgical prayers that we've been introducing, the hope is that we are actually going to speak our way into faith. We're going to practice our way into formation that we're going to say these prayers, confess these creeds, declare these truths about God, whether or not we feel them in the moment, but because they are ultimately his said, and we want to be conformed to his image. And so we're going to say these until they become true about us. And it's a different approach to worship and formation than many of us have uh, come from. But I'm convinced, as we said last week, if there is no formation without repetition, then we want to do this week after week after week. We come and we confess. 
And then we have room, a little bit of room for some silent reflection. And so my hope is that at least once a week now, you have space with your brothers and sisters to practice confession and that 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 will begin to shape our lives as we go from here. And so um, here's what's so interesting. What kind of church do we want to be part of? What kind of Christian community do you want to belong to? Do you want to belong to one where everybody's defending themselves, justifying themselves, proving to you why they didn't do anything wrong and why they're okay? Or a Christian community where everybody's pretending all the time, going around with masks on, maintaining an image of something they aren't? None of us want that kind of church. So listen to what Dallas Willard says. He says, confession alone makes deep fellowship possible. And the lack of it explains much of the superficial quality so commonly found in our churches. It's going, the key to becoming an authentic Christian community marked by by Jesus-centered relationships and mutual discipleship and shared ministry, he's going, you can't get there without confession. And one more thought from Bonhoeffer. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he's no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as I'm by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother, that has, it's, the sin has to be brought into the light. And so that's where I'm saying... Confession, yes, should be a private and individual practice as we come to God in prayer throughout our lives, wherever we do that. But it also has to be a central practice to the gathering of the church where together we declare out loud that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. But the point of confession isn't to leave feeling terrible about ourselves, is it? The point isn't to walk away feeling guilty or ashamed or exposed. Back to that prayer, the whole idea is that when we come with humble hearts to the God of mercy, confessing our sins, then what does he say in verse 8? That God will be faithful and just and forgive us from our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the goal. Confession is a means to receiving the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the cleansing of God. Now we know forgiveness is the idea that we're absolved of our guilt. But he says we're also going to be cleansed, purified from all unrighteousness, cleansed of our shame. Not just forgiven for the bad things we've done or the good things we haven't done, but actually cleansed from the shame, from the the false beliefs we have about who we are. And so how does all this happen? How is it all made possible? Well, he tells us in verse 1, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And so in Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his giving of the Spirit, in his inaugurating of his kingdom. We are guilty and shameful before God, but as we confess our sins, we receive a new identity, 
a new life, a new record. And so the invitation of the gospel is that I no longer trust on my work and record to justify myself before God, but I get to trust in the work and record of Christ. The hope is that this would be a lived experience for us. Not just an abstract theological concept that I'm forgiven and purified, but that as we confess, we would truly receive the grace of his forgiveness and his mercy and his cleansing. And I know I can't get enough of that. So Antioch, the invitation is let's be those who walk in the light, not in the darkness. Let's be those who don't defend, don't pretend, but rather are willing to let the light of God shine into our lives and confess our sins not only to him, but, not, but also to one another so that we can truly be the body of Christ to one another and to the world.